Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stenner, founder of Center Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth Podcast. Available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. Hello, everyone. I'm Thane Stenner, host of the BNN Bloomberg Brand Studio Smart Wealth Monthly Podcast. And uh, I'm also the founder of Center Wealth Partners, Canaccord Genuity, based here in Vancouver uh, with contacts and clients across Canada. This is a fun podcast for me to do. I get to interview some pioneers from various industries uh, and uh, people that are kind of leading the way. And uh, I think everybody will really enjoy my guest here today. Uh, Focus of the podcast is to kind of hear about their wealth creation story, some of the lessons that they've learned along the way and tips that they're willing to share or that I'm able to tease out of them. So I'm really looking forward to uh, today's session. My goal with this Smart Wealth podcast is to have an authentic personal conversation with some amazing people who have already accomplished a lot, uh, but still have a lot more to do. So with that in mind, I'd like uh, to introduce my very special guest today, Marcus New, the founder and CEO of Investex, uh, which is a a private growth company that invests in pre-IPO companies. Uh, and it's been in business uh, now for, I think, seven or eight years, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Marcus, you want to correct me on that? You're absolutely right. Okay. We're running on, yeah, eight years. Wow, time that, flies. And by the way, how, how, many, uh, how many employees do you have now currently? About 70. 70? And yeah. uh, based out of Vancouver and New York? Correct. Yeah, we have probably about uh, 40, approximately Vancouver, 20 in New York, and about 10 scattered around North America. Excellent, excellent. Well, listen, uh, the growth equity asset class has certainly um, garnered a lot of interest over, over the last five, six, seven years, and it's been one of the best areas actually to invest in. So, um, but I'll give you a little bit more about uh, Marcus's background before we get officially started here. Um, Investex, uh, its investment portfolio is invested in companies like Palantir, Airbnb, SoFi, Lyft. Uber, Pinterest, Spotify, Dropbox, DocuSign, 23andMe, and uh, other companies, global companies like uh, Instacart, just to name a few. Uh, Through Marcus's family office, he's led more than 200 private placements into early stage private and public companies over over his career, which is very significant. There's very few people in the industry that have had his type of background. Again, I, I think uh, this will be a very uh, insightful interview. Marcus is also the founder and chairman and previously the CEO of Stockhouse Publishing, one of North America's leading online financial communities and a global hub for accredited investors. Prior to starting or launching Stockhouse, Marcus built this Stock Group Media, an online information company whose client base consists of some of the top Canadian brokerage firms, global institutional sales desks, and hedge funds, just to name a few. So Marcus, as I've known him for, I think the last six, seven years, has demonstrated that he's very passionate about entrepreneurship and he's made it his life's mission to be at the forefront of innovation and leadership within the financial markets. That's something that I've certainly observed uh, of him over those last six, seven years. He's also served as the past president of the Vancouver chapter the Canadian Chair, Conference Chair for the Entrepreneurs' Organization, or EO, and was a finalist for the Ernst & Young's 
Entrepreneur of the Year for the Pacific region. Marcus is also an alumni of MIT's Birthing of Giants program and holds a Bachelor of Arts with a business major from Trinity Western University. So Marcus, uh, I wanna really give you a warm welcome and thank you for attending today to share some of your thoughts. It's great to be here and you can be my publicist anytime. <laughs> Sounds good. So let's get started. Um, so let's begin with, you know, what, are, what would you say what the one or two things that you're most proud of uh, that you've accomplished so far, you know, you and your family, uh, what you've accomplished and kind of why? Maybe just start us off there. Well, that's a big question. Uh, and there's a lot of different angles to it, a lot of different lenses to it for sure. I would say probably at a high level though, um, is trying to really uh, live a life of purpose around a core set of values that we think are really important to me individually, to my family, to my business. And so those really stem from the kind of faith, family, entrepreneurship, learning, and then finally generosity. And so let me kind of take that in context. So, you know, so the first one is, you know, faith drives kind of a Judeo-Christian set of values of how we want to operate and live, but also how we want to model that for our family. Right. And so and, and the type of modeling that we want to do to produce, hopefully, children that will also amplify those things in the world, too, and help to you know, do the things that are important for us, learning and generosity, which I'll talk about or entrepreneurship if they choose to do that as well. The second part is family itself. So family being a core value is, you know, making sure that we spend the time to make sure I have one wife, you know, for my life, you know, and make sure that our that our children are, are well balanced and grew up with, again, the same set of core values. Um, of what are important to us. You know, entrepreneurship, though, is, is a thing that's super important to me and I'm super passionate about, right? And you, and you spoke about the beginning in terms of some of the intro. I've been involved as an entrepreneur most of my life or all my life, you know, and it's something I deeply care about. And I care about deeply because, you know, what do entrepreneurs really do? Well, we really try to solve problems, really difficult and hard problems, right, to solve. And so that tenacity around how do we go about and stick with it and work hard at it to try to figure it out you know, is something that we we really strive for. And, you know, and, and we take things right through in order to figure out how do we get them done, right? And so, and I think those values are really important in your life, right? Whether you want to be an entrepreneur or not, whether you want to be a doctor, whether you want to be a social worker, whether you want to be a veterinarian, it doesn't matter, right? It's taking kind of that bigger of doing something really deeply well. But also what I like about it too is how we solve big problems, right? All entrepreneurs really deeply try to solve really, really big problems. And so, so being an entrepreneur, I think creates a lot of opportunities for you know success in life and business and things like that. And then the next piece of it, you know, value is learning, right? And and you know, and I probably mentioned to you before, but you know, I spend ten to twenty thousand dollars a year on learning, right? And so you talked a little bit about the programs I've done over at MIT, you know, at different types of thought leaders that I spend time listening to and learning with. I have two coaches, right? And we have an executive coach for our team, which I participate with. I also have a personal coach, and I use these coaches in order to keep getting better. Now, one of the problems sometimes about that value, though, is that you can kind of sometimes forget to celebrate what happens because you always want to be self-improving, right? And there's this constant sense of like doing something better all the time. But the reality of it is, is that learning is a super core value for us. And we think that, you know, in innovation economies or as the economy and life change for our kids, they have to have a mindset of learning, right? All that leads, though, to what I would say kind of, you know, one of our most important values, which is generosity. Right? We, we deeply believe we are born in a zip code that opportunities. And I know many other people have said this to you too. You know, the opportunities was a big part of their success. But you know, we were born in zip code that gave us opportunities. And a lot of people in the world just were not, right? And so I think that it, we actually have a fundamental um, you know, uh, 
almost head like a, a tenant. Yeah. Which a head start. Well, I, you know, we, for sure we got a head start, but I think we have actually, we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to use the wealth creation that we've made, a portion of it, help those that didn't have the opportunity. You know, what did you or I do to get born in a zip code that gave us all this opportunity of education, you know, capital, all these things, you know, governments that were stable. We did nothing. It was not of our own doing. But, you know, what about the person in Africa or the person in Russia or the person in all these other countries in Syria that has very little opportunity? So, so there's a lot of need in the world. And so I think that part of my own personal responsibility, going back to our core values, is that, you know, we have to be very generous. We have to help other people because we were given opportunities that they weren't. And so, so if you go back to answer your question, you know, what are some of the things that are really most important or why, you know, it's I think that, you know, that we've accomplished is really kind of try to live a life of purpose around these core values, you know, and hopefully instilling them in our community, with our children and in our business. Excellent. So we're going to go to a quick break here. We're with Marcus New of Investex Capital, a special guest today uh, talking about uh, his learnings in his life and his career so far. So we'll be right back. Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth Podcast. Available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. So welcome back, everybody. I'm uh, here with special guest Marcus New of Investex uh, Capital, and we're just, uh, just getting rolling on the interview. So uh, off to a great start. So Marcus, you know, you've been successful in this very interesting uh, uh, asset class of private equity, pre-IPO uh, type of business that you formed. What would you say that, you know, the increased level of wealth, has it affected you as to how you think and relate to money today? Ha, that's an interesting question. Um, it has changed, but I think it changed kind of a little bit later in my career. And, and so to give you context, so I grew up kind of, again, lower middle class and, you know, been working since basically I was 12 years old, you know, started off as a matter of doing lots of different jobs uh, when I was in high school, junior high. Um, but I always was very frugal. And so like everything I bought was on sale. Like, you know, it didn't matter what it was. I, I had this, it used to be this, when I first got married, I had this entertainment book. It was basically these two for ones. You buy one dinner, you get one free. You know, we would only go, we're only allowed to go to a place where we had a coupon, right? And so, and, and I was making reasonable money for, you know, my age and all that kind of stuff, but it was always this mindset around kind of scarcity, right? I had a mindset of scarcity related to money. And that's just kind of how we grew up where it wasn't a lot. We, you know, many people have had that same experience. So, so the context was, is as I got older and to me, it was never about making money. It was always about the challenge of accomplishing the business. You know, the business grew. Yes, it created more wealth, which was awesome. But the reality is it wasn't really important to me because again, I didn't have this, this mindset of like the wealth told me that I was important. What told me that I was important was actually accomplishing things, building the teams, building great businesses. That's what actually was important. That was a challenge. That was what was exciting. That was the passion of it. It wasn't how do I maximize making the most amount of money for myself. But as times change, what it has come down to too is that I have changed my you know, let's call it my relationship with money, probably a good way of saying it, right? Which is, you know, I'm really seeing that it is a powerful product for different objectives. Since you go back to the core value, it's a, it's a powerful product for generosity. It's a powerful product for taking care of your family, right? You know, it's a powerful product for taking care of, you know, others that are important to you and things like that. And so, so today I buy things still at the end of the season and I put away in the closet to next year because they're half price. And that's my second favorite discount over 70% off. 
but you know, but I buy better quality stuff. <laughs> so, you know, so that $5,000 suit that I buy for $2,000 is different than the $500 suit trying to buy for 200 bucks. The reality is I still haven't been in that mindset, but you know, it was pretty bad at one point thing in my business. I used to have people say, hey, Marcus, you throw, you know, nickels around like manhole covers, you know, you keep them so tight, right? And so now, and when we first started getting our businesses going, those were important traits to have. But one of the things where I think it was really a negative for us was sometimes we didn't pay people well enough, or we didn't use enough money to attract the best quality talent, especially earlier in my career, right? And so there would be a thing where, you know, not paying enough attention to money actually could, could hurt you, you know? Interesting. So who would you say, first of all, have you had mentors, entrepreneurial mentors in your life? And if so, maybe share one or two that kind of has impacted how you think about business and, you know, trying to strive for betterment, I guess, over time. I would say that um, I've had different kind of, well, I call it kind of mentor, maybe slash coaches. You know, today I have a more formalized where I actually have two coaches that I work with. Um, but I had a board member before um, who was a very successful, um, I wouldn't call an entrepreneur, he's a professional manager. He worked for a company called McDonald Detweiler. He ran their space in defense. And, but he was one of these, you know, some people, when you meet with them, they just make great decisions all the time. Like you just know that it's thoughtful. They've got deep experience when they make it. They kind of pause, but they have deep understanding of issues that are complex, even though they have had very little time with them. He was a person like that. And, um, you know, he taught me many, many things that I really kind of respected. But one of the things he taught me was sometimes I have a tendency to maybe complain about something. And he would say, Marcus, like, get off the fence, either stop complaining or do something about it. You know, kind of this call to action. And, and he taught me a lot of different things as a young entrepreneur about just how business worked and things of that nature. When it came to kind of wealth, though, you know, I think in terms of managing and stuff like that, I'm a member of Tiger 21, which I think has been a really helpful group in terms of some of those related issues related to how to manage kind of personal wealth. But I'm a professional investor. I spent my entire life managing money, dealing with money, right? You know, so if I can't make it, you know, something seriously wrong, right? If I don't know how to manage something seriously wrong. But I think that, you know, the mentorship for me too has been in the forms of different people, you know, in terms of people that have spoken directly right into my life, a coach or, or someone like my board member and other board members that I've had, a tremendous board members. I've always tried to great, put great people around me to be able to help kind of speak to my life around business and my personal life as well. But the other part is just learning, right? Having a core value of learning. I'm spending time working on best practices, the best quality teachers for various different subjects all the time. And it's just something that not only do I enjoy, but I think it really creates betterment for our business and our personal life. So constant learning. Basically, it's, I think there's a Japanese principle called can I? Constant never-ending improvement that kind of comes to mind as you're speaking. So what would you say have been a few of the biggest challenges or even a you know, low point, quite candidly, in your life and career thus far? Well, you know, I think as an entrepreneur, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to go through failure. Uh, there's no question about it. You know, in um, I had a, a data company you talked about at the beginning where we licensed our products to hedge funds and to, um, you know, institutional trade desks and to financial services companies. You know, we went through, you know, 2007, 2008, not to lament it because many people went through it, but that was an incredible experience where we lost, you know, hundreds of customers literally in a year. You know, going out of business, couldn't afford it, which then put a whole bunch of pressure on our own business. And so, you know, I think if you've been in business long enough, you've gone through recessions, yep. you know, but I do think that, you know, you do learn a lot, 
right? And I'll give you a perfect example in our own business today. Um, when COVID hit, you know, two years, I guess two years ago now, right? Two years and a bit, you know, the world's falling apart, it's March. And I said to myself, and I said to our team, I said, look, I've been through three of these, right? I was there in the 90s, I was there in 2002, 2001, I was there in 2008, you know, and we can talk a little bit about 11, 12 in certain asset classes. But the reality was, is that, you know, we knew there was going to be some amazing businesses, Airbnb being one of them, for example, you know, uh, SoFi being another, DocuSign, you know, or, or, or you know, others like that. And we say, they're going to go no bid because the private market is super inefficient. And so they're going to go no bid. We have to put a small fund together to capture that. Well, now that fund was a super success. It returned, I think, 3.7x or something in a, year, in a year and a half, which is all terrific. But the reality is, is how do you get the initiative, some people might call it guts, some people would call it stupidity, to go and do something like that in probably one of the darkest moments certain times that has happened you know, in the financial markets. Now, this is before the market started to do better. Well, that comes from experience, right? And it comes from your point of like, you know, each of these lessons, these hard, hard, hard lessons that we learned, you know, in 97, 99, 2001, 2007, 2012, 2015, each of these hard, hard lessons becomes a fabric of your experiences, which helps you to be able to see opportunities, but also to avoid them, right? And also to figure out ways to get around them because it's not your first rodeo, right? And so, so there's been lots of different things like that in business. The second thing I would say in my personal life, if you're a 1K flyer on United or a super elite flyer on, on Air Canada, your family is at risk for a relationship, right? And so this was a deep learning for me too, right? I was so excited. I was traveling, doing all these things in the business and, and had, a, ten, and had a, a period of time in my life where I really put my family at risk by not spending the right amount of time with it. And that was a deep mistake, right? And so thankfully my wife you know, forgave me and my family kind of reorganized around me. But the reality is that that could have been a really different outcome you know, and so that would be a, a learning that I hope others pay attention to. You cannot travel 100,000 plus miles on an airplane and have a deep family life. It's very difficult. There's some exceptions to it. I know there is, but in a general sense, it's really, really tough. And so I'd be very cautious about doing that. I never want to do that again. Excellent. Excellent. Very good insight, Marcus. So maybe tell, tell everybody uh, about your current business with InvestX and, you know, maybe some of the metrics. I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think you've created or, you know, maybe share amount of money that's been, you know, raised, invested, how the business model kind of works. And so far, I think you've created uh, value, you know, of at least half a billion dollars of profits for, for clients, if not significantly more. So just, you know, without just being an infomercial, I just kind of want to say, what, yeah. what, are the, what are the key things you're currently doing today with Investex? Yeah, so Investex really was started with a thesis that, you know, um, and sometimes you can only see these things when you're in the markets, but we were covering the public equity markets and technology companies. And, and one of the things we saw that was happening in the private markets were these companies were staying private longer. So back in 2013, when we started, you know, it started looking at Investex and ultimately started in 2014, you know, this was not a trend that people knew about. I mean, you hear about more today because of all the successes in the private markets, but back then it was not the case. And when we looked at it, what we found was, Companies historically would go public kind of at year four or five. And Amazon would be a good example. When public, I think the market cap was about, about $450 million or so. And then all of a sudden you see a Facebook go public and it's $104 billion. So here you have this company, Amazon goes public at half a billion. Facebook gets public at $104 billion. And when you looked at that and you studied it, you said, holy, holy crow, there's like 12 institutional investors, you know, and Facebook is a little bit more, but they've made all the money there. 
So, you know, because if you went public at half a billion dollars, most of the money was made in the public markets, right? Most investors could participate in the growth of those companies. But if $104 billion of value is created in the private markets, who's benefiting and what, how are they making it? And we said, wow, that's pretty crazy for two reasons. Number one is there's a lot of money being made there. But number two is it's only being made by a dozen group of institutional investors. And there has to be a way for other people to participate. And so our real causation for starting the business was, First of all, there's a lot of money to be made there. So that's number one principle, right? But then the second principle was, how do we make sure lots of people can participate in this, what's happening in the market? And so it's seeing it early. And so that's how we started. And so we've invested about half a billion US dollars to date. Like you said, we've had, I think our average annualized return net of fees, all products combined, you know, is about 26% or something like that. So it's been really, really high, uh, you know, and part of that is because it's not because we just choose great companies, which we do. Most companies we invested in, like you said at the beginning, are world-class companies. They're usually number one in the world in their space, you know, but part of it is because the market's so inefficient in the private markets. If you want to know about a company in the public markets, you go read about all the filings are public. If you want to go buy those shares, you know, the bid is two cents. It's $103.02 to $103.03. That's the bid offer spread. If you want to buy something in the private markets, where do you go? What do you pay? How do you get information? And because all those things are very obscure and difficult to do, there's opportunity. Now, because the market is super inefficient. I always joke in the public markets, it's hard to beat the Goldman Sachs computers, right? But in the private markets, if you are deeply skilled there, there's an incredible opportunity to take advantage of those market inefficiencies. And so that's really what we set out to do. And because our, our overall objective was, hey, there's got to be a way for a lot more people to participate than those 12 guys, those 12 institutional investors. That is just completely unfair. And so we have to figure out a way. And we've done a really amazing job of doing that. So when you mentioned 26% net, uh, that's a compounded rate of return number, isn't it? Approximately, yeah. I don't quote me exactly, but I'm, I don't know by more than 2%. Well, my point being is that that would probably place Investex in the top 1% of investors globally, actually. Uh, based upon the stats that I see. So uh, well done, well done. So how would you assess today's market, right? Technology, you know, NASDAQ is down, you know, 30% roughly as we speak today on, uh, you know, July 13th or sorry, July 12th, uh, 2022. And I think, you know, NASDAQ's down, markets are down, private markets are down, but how would you describe the opportunity set today? I think that the opportunity to set, it's a good question, um, is very individual company specific. Right? So um, there's a couple of things that are happening, you know, in, in public markets that are different in the private markets. The public markets right now are very, very efficient, um, but they're, you know, if you look at historical trends, let's just take a SaaS business, you know, and I can get the exact details, but historically over the last kind of 15 years or so, SaaS multiples would trade kind of in a eight times, you know, price to sales basis okay, for a SaaS business, something like that. Today, they're trading at six or five, okay? So do they go back to the mean, you know, potentially at some period of time, of course, you know, when that day is, who knows, right? But the reality is, is that there are long-term trend lines of what, you know, kind of metrics are for the valuation of these companies in the public equity markets, right? And so if you think about the private markets, though, it's very, it's quite different. The main difference in the private markets is that that's really the only place you can buy growth tech companies. In the public markets, they just don't exist on a broad basis. You know, you look at Salesforce, it's growing at 20 something percent a year. You know, most of those companies that are growing like that are also growing a lot of it because of acquisitions, right? I think Google makes an acquisition every single week, right? Mm -hmm. So they have an inorganic part because they have to keep the growth rate up, but that's because cost of capital is really low, right? So they can use their balance sheet, basically cash flow, basically continue to support growing also through acquisitions as well. 
So the bigger companies are getting bigger. And we've seen over the last 20 years in the, on the, in the US markets, there's half the number of listings today. If you look over in the private markets though, all of a sudden now we have like 850 companies worth over a billion dollars, you know, that literally was under a hundred, you know, eight years ago, nine years ago. So what's changed? Public market, the number of listings is down. Private markets, the number of listings are going up, right? And these, these markets are actually kind of merging together. The regulators are seeing that that's happening. Investors are seeing that happening. They're seeing that money is actually being made over the private markets. So going back to your question though, you know, where's the value, right? The value really comes from understanding what the company's doing against its growth prospects, you know, obviously in, in terms of some multiplication value that you put on it, you know, what it looks like three years from now, this would be a typical way tech investors would invest, you know, thematically against themes you think will be big markets. But here's one interesting thing in the private markets that doesn't exist in the public outside the growth rates, right? And the growth rates just to pause on that are really important because if you're growing at 40% a year instead of 20, as a SaaS business, you make more profit faster, right? Your multipliers grow faster, just math, right? And so if you think about three years out, what's the value of that business growing at 40% versus 20 is significantly higher, right? And so, so the other piece though, is that because there's no market in the private markets or very little market in the private markets, there are a number of distressed sellers in this market today. So the way we look at it today is if you're a distressed seller and there's no bid on a stock, you know, which would never happen in the public market, there's always be a bid. But if there's no bid on the stock, what do you do? So if you're a buyer in this market, there's some incredible opportunities to find really amazing businesses that we know well today or that we can get to know better over time that you can actually you know, buy at some incredible prices because the fact that distressed sellers in the private market is so inefficient, they have to sell it, they have to hit a bid. Right. And so, so this is an interesting dynamic. And, and I, and I talked about that earlier in your show, you know, where in COVID time, we did the exact same thing. We took advantage of basically high quality companies where someone needed to hit a bid. There was no bid. We were the bid, right. And because we had access to information to how the company was doing, we were able to actually be super successful in the investment. So, so you have to pick stocks here, right. And I would not be picking anything that needs to raise money in the next two years, right. Which is the other thing too. If you have to raise money, it's going to be lower no matter what, unless you're SpaceX. Because Elon, everyone loves him. It doesn't matter. He just raised another billion and a half dollars, 25% higher than the last round. Amazing. Yeah. But there's one Elon. Well said. So actually, you know, one of the things I find is giving people examples as to how things work. So why don't we just use an example that maybe comes to mind uh, that I'm familiar with, you're familiar with. What about uh, Instacart, right? Delivery service, huge in the U.S., major dominant market share it's come to Canada in the last number of years and growing here and other parts of the world. So just walk us quickly through what did you, what did your group do in order to research and find it? How'd you access it? Um, how did you get a good price for it? Like what was your decision criteria and how do you, you know, generally things going to play out here over the next couple of years, if you had to guess not holding you to this, but on the future part, but just because this will really be helpful for people to understand your business model and how you think your way through to try to create value for your investors. Yeah, that's a great question. And Instagram's really a really interesting company, probably a really great example because it's gone through some ebbs and flows in terms of business performance, right? And so, so one of the, the tenets of how we look at things and making investments as technology-related investors or software-related investors is we look for obviously things that have a lot of operating leverage in their business, right? So that have very, very strong competitive modes that once they're simulated are really hard to penetrate, 
And so businesses that have network effects are some of the most powerful business models in the world, right? And Uber is a perfect example of that. You have to have enough drivers in order to have enough customers, or you can, why there's been very little competitors outside some slip ups, and I'm sure everyone's seen super pumped by now. So, but putting that aside, Instacart had the same idea around groceries, right? And so it locked up basically product or supply, right? It had technology innovation, delivery, it was on trend, and it created network effects there. And then what happened is the pandemic, though, gave it, you know, turbine, nitro, choose five more, you know, things that make cars or planes go faster and put it behind it all at the same time, right? And, and the perfect storm for Instacart really was that if you think about, you know, the power of a business model like that versus the power of a business model like Walmart, which obviously supply chain is their huge competitive advantage. But a Walmart and Amazon, they couldn't scale up people fast enough. HR processes, training, compliance, all those kind of things. Instacart basically in a platform where people could come on and work, were able to scale up their business during COVID in a way that no one else could. They literally could scale up where no one else could, right? Because their business model was superior, because the network effects of the business model was superior. And so and one of the great things about Instacart, as you know, and so this is what some of the things we look for, is they don't have to own the inventory. They don't take inventory risk. I am does on some the same thing, of course, but, you know, they don't have to take, you know, risk of, of employees or, con you know, contractors or wages and all those kind of things, right? They basically are a technology solution in the middle. And so, so we looked at Instacart because of those issues. The other piece we looked at was if you looked at e-commerce rates at the time when we bought Instacart, which was about three years ago. Um, you know, e-commerce and groceries was, I think at the time, about 2.6% overall. Average product in e-commerce was about 50%, with electronics being the highest around 45 or 50%, mm. right? And so, so there's a lot of room for it to grow. It was a small part of having to change behaviors for people because, you know, things like fresh products was an issue for people. I, I go to the grocery store because I want to pick up the apple, right? But once people learned that that picker could pick up the apple just as good as you could pick up the apple, right? It started to change that parameter. And so... So we had the kind of the, the right time, the right investment. But at the time, there wasn't a lot of people, you know, that were really crazy about Instacart, right? And so, but, you know, you have to be on the other edge of being, you know, around a thesis that you believe in that's really, really important. We also had a lot of experience with a lot of other marketplaces like that, of, of, of other companies with network effects. So we knew what metrics that were really important that we we're looking at in terms of they were driving and successful metrics. So, so we made, went to make an investment. The company went up, it was super successful COVID. Now the problem though, that company, as you probably know, is if you grow substantially in a period like COVID, how does it normalize, right? Because, you know, how sustainable is that, right? Because there's no choices. So Instacart got all the benefits of it, right? You know, and all the growing pains of it too, but there's no choice. So it has to kind of restabilize. And so I think management did a great thing where they, you know, let the company get a couple of years of operating outside of COVID under its belt so that it can go back into a consistent growth story. Because, you know, if you're public, you better be growing. You cannot be uh, contracting. Yeah. And so but that's kind of how we look at it. And so, you know, we do our research, we go through models, we build them up, we look at scenarios, we look at kind of our base cases. Can we make a 2x cash on cash return? Our target case is 3x cash on cash return. And that's what generates for us a minimum of 20% annualized uh, return for clients. You know, and then we look at, okay, what's our risk profile against other types of investments? But we bought, we also don't buy anything early stage. We only buy things that are proven businesses, right? At the time when we bought it, I think they were doing about, oh, I think they're about 6 billion, 7 billion GMV um, gross merchandise value on platform, six or 7 billion, right? So they had a lot of key, key grocery stores in place already, a lot of key customers in place for supplies. So, 
We're not looking for companies trying to figure out their business. What we want to do is give companies that have got great businesses that they figured them out, which is very few of those, give them more capital so they can grow faster, right? And so, so that was the key there. The one thing I would say differently today that we look at compared to what we looked at back then, you know, this comes again back from experiences though, is that those companies today better be profitable, right? Or, or, better, be, or better have enough cash, way beyond enough cash to get to profitability in the short term. Because if you have if you have financing risk today, right, you are going to take a haircut on valuation. There's just no question. So if you want to buy the secondary market where we also buy outside of just primaries, where you invest with the company when they're doing around the secondaries, you have to be very, very smart around buying too. Right. So and so those are things that we look at and how we kind of approach the market. Excellent. Excellent. That's I think a very good description. I think I think you guys got involved in that one at around a three billion valuation, give or take. And I think it zoomed up, uh, pun intended there, zoomed up to uh, you know, close to 40 billion in the private markets on valuation. It's come back down, obviously, some. But um, so I think one of the tenants that you guys look at or look for is to try to get to a liquidity path within two to three years, typically. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. We want to own companies basically for three years. Um, some companies like Instacart, you know, we made up only for four or five. Lyft, we own for four or five. And then others have actually been a little bit quicker. But you don't want to be trying to get a company a year before it goes public. Once I'll give you a perfect example of a company called Palantir. So Palantir was a company that would be trading in kind of the five to six fifty share price range. They announced they went public. The stock went to nine dollars in the private markets right away, which makes them, should make some sense because you're basically getting rid of the liquidity discount or the liquidity risk, right, of the investment, right. So you know, but the context being is that once it's announced, everyone knows about it. You know, so our idea isn't to do that. I might as well be the public markets then, right? Because if everyone knows about it, the market's more efficient, right? And so what we want to do is we want to invest in world-class entrepreneurs and management teams, you know, own those companies for three years. You know, sometimes it'll be five or six and sometimes it'll be two, right? But own those companies, let them grow, let them execute their business plan. Let us grow into making that return profile that we want. And that's what we look to do. Excellent. Well, listen, everybody, we're going to go to one last break here and we'll Welcome back, Marcus New of Investex uh, shortly. So back in a few minutes. Want to know how Canada's top industry leaders feel about creating significant wealth in the world around them? Find out with me, Thane Stenner, founder of Stenner Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity and host of the new Smart Wealth Podcast. Available on iHeart or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now. Welcome everybody. I'm back uh, with Marcus New of Investex having a, a great interview and uh, uh, welcome back everybody. So we're just going to finish off with the last two, three questions here, Marcus, uh, given how busy his schedule is. But, you know, so one of the questions, Marcus, I'd say is, you know, if you had $10 million today to deploy personally, okay, and, you know, if it was through Investex, you'd probably say, okay, well, I'd probably put it, you know, mostly there. But what would you recommend uh, on a personal, uh, just from a point of view, sectors, uh, cash, like, what would be your stance today? Putting it all in crypto. I mean, <laughs> cool. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I literally had someone say to me, uh, the person will be remain nameless. Um, I was at a conference out at, out in Boston and, uh, you know, out at MIT actually. And, uh, they told me they put in like, you know, a lot of their net worth into Bitcoin and it was going to the moon, you know, and all the cliches around it. And, and they're one of those people too that basically would not listen to any other point of view, right? You know, and even just asked a few questions around it was like, you know, 
it was very, very hardened stance. And, you know, and not to say that's obviously why they lost a lot of money, but I think that, I think it goes back to, you have to have a pretty open mindset. And so let me maybe give you a couple of principles around what I would, how I would shape kind of making that investment. Right. And so, you know, one of the things I think, you know, is important is that um, you have to, if you, if it's my personal money, right. I want to invest in things I know because I have this rule. I have to pay to learn. Let's just say real estate, for example. Real estate is a perfect example where, you know, I've actually done no real estate investing. You know, we have a few homes that we own, you know, personally, but but an actual like for profit, right? And so if I was to go make an investment in real estate, I'd have to understand location, you know, cap rates, you know, tenants, you know, how to manage those things. Where is the competitive market? Because everyone that basically has $100,000 can go invest in real estate. So I'm guessing it's probably... Pretty efficient, probably not a lot of returns there if everyone can go do it, right? And so, so part of the context of that is, you know, if I go into something I don't know, then I have to just recognize I'm going to lose some money until I get good and efficient at it. And then I'll probably be very successful at it. But I have to go with that mindset because otherwise the mindset will be, I'm going to go in there, I'm just going to lose. I'm going to lose. No one believes that. That's actually affect what happens. Now lose might be just get a really lower rate of return than what that asset class should produce because you're just not skilled at it, right? So that's one thing that I do. The second thing that I kind of think about is when I buy a company or a stock or some investment, what's the purpose of what I'm looking for for that company to do? Here's the, I would tell you the biggest thing that I've been successful at in terms of making money in public stocks. And we talked about it earlier, you know, I, I had a career in, in buying earlier stage public companies, right? And investing in earlier stage companies did a lot of pipes, for example, is you better know why you're owning it. Because this is what happens for most investors. They say, oh, and I'll give you, for example, myself personally, a mistake I made. I took IBM. We all know IBM and all of its, you know, embedded customers and infrastructure and all those kind of things. And so the play for me in making a small personal investment in IBM was their move into blockchain. And so thematically, I felt that blockchain itself was going to be a future on how, you know, a lot of different things transact in the financial markets, et cetera. So thematically very good, although I was early, but thematically good. IBM had a lot of capabilities to actually be a leader there. Right? because of customers and because of infrastructure experiences and capital, all those kind of things. So it never played out. You know, so, so, what you, so the context here is if I make an investment, what, what am I looking for? What are the milestones? If they don't hit the milestones, I have to sell it. This is what most people don't do. What they do is they justify the new reason for why they own it. And so I always say to people, I say, look, what you should do instead is this. If you're looking for two milestones and that business isn't making those two milestones, let's say they're looking for an increase in margin because of a new product or whatever the, the specific milestones of why you want to own it. If they don't make those milestones, sell it today. And then a week from now, if you want to go buy it again, buy it back a week from now. But go through the discipline process of, I bought it for these things I was looking for to make that I thought it would make money. It didn't turn out. So I'm going to sell it. If I want to relook at it because I now don't want to buy it because of blockchain, I want to buy it because it's got legacy cash flow. To make that decision. So, so that was a, a key piece of, of one of the things that I look at too. And I'd say to add to that too, you know, sell losers, right? You know this thing, you know, like never average down, sell losers because something broken, but that kind of goes back to the same mantra, right? So so the so not to answer your question with how you started, but the reality is, is that I like to buy things that are somewhat inefficient. Now that's hard to do. Now, obviously I've explained, I won't re re rehash it out here. We believe the private markets are super efficient. So I spent a lot of my time and money, personal money in the private markets because of that, because I think I have an advantage there. I don't think I have a lot of advantage in large cap, you know, public stocks, for example, right? Now there are other areas too, like for example, niche you know, asset areas where people have advantages that I don't. I mean, crypto is probably one of them. There's people I'm sure that study crypto and know how to make money in crypto, right? I'm just not one of those people, right? Yeah. So- 
But if I was to take $10 million, you know, I think um, I was thinking about this. I was talking with my Tiger group about this too. You know, I, I have very low exposure to public markets. You know, there's an opportunity coming here shortly, probably if I think about over 10 years, right, to put money away in public markets over 10 years. And so I'd probably take a portion of that and put it in, I'd stage it in three different tranches probably over the next nine months, you know, or 12 months. You know, I don't need to hit the bottom, won't hit the top. You know, if I think about that for 10 year money, right, and put that, put that kind of away. But the most of it that I try to do is really just manage risk through diversification in the private markets, you know, and sending cash, right? And just always have a good portion of cash all the time, which is always just valuable because, you know, distress things come up and you want to be able to take advantage of them. Well said. You want to be in a position of strength, right, uh, over time. So uh, what would be the one thing about you that very few people, maybe your wife and your kids, know about you that, that uh, you'd want to share? Oh, you know, I think, um, well, you know, people that know me, a lot of people know me for generosity. Um, and so I think as you accumulate, you know, a significant amount of wealth, I think it's easy to write checks. But one of the things that probably people don't know very much is that I actually believe it's really, really, really important to actually go and do the experiences. And the reason is because if you actually experience what a person goes through that is in a more distressed or does not the same opportunities, kind of position, you can actually deeply understand it, you know, more so than just, I wrote a check and I'm doing some good job, right? I'll give you a perfect example. I'll give you two examples. So one example is there's a, there's an organization called Covenant House. They're all across the U.S. and Canada. They're basically almost like a youth shelter and kind of mental health facility for youth kind of from age 16 to I think 20, right? So youth that have a problem at home, get to get out, live on the streets. They try to help rehabilitate them be, before they become lifetime people on the street, right? And so and a great noble cause. And so I helped raise some money for them. But, but here was the, the thing, you know, a group of us as entrepreneurs, we went and we slept outside. And so how it changed my perspective, though, was I, I got a piece of cardboard and I got a sleeping bag and I had one night outside, but it rained all night. You love that. In Vancouver, it rained all night. What a surprise. So, but everything was wet. And I said, I'm sticking out no matter what, all the way through. Most people in the group went into like a little underground parking lot to get out of the rain. I wanted to, to, to have that experience the whole night. And really deeply understand it. And what I came to understand is I would sometimes drive by and you would see youth, you know, that were kind of on the street. You know, you go, why don't you just get a job? It's not like you're like this 60-year-old person that can barely function, right? You're a youth. You've got all the energy, etc. And I kind of would look down at it like, you know, do something about it. But what I really deeply understood from going through the experience was that, you know what? If you have had rain all night and have had very little sleep, how do you have a job interview? If you can't get a shower and you can't have a, you know, something on that's clean, how do you do that? And if you're worried all night about someone stealing your shoes, right? Because that's actually probably the biggest concern for people on the street. Someone steals their shoes, then you've got a big problem. So it gave me a lot more empathy around those, the, the people that are experiencing that. And so then figuring out ways that I can be generous. You know, now with that said, I believe that you actually have a lot more impact in other areas. And so we invest in things like infrastructure. Like I'd rather drill a well that will help a community for 20 years, it might cost $100,000 instead of giving $100,000 on food. Not to say that people don't need those basic needs, but we always try to invest in things that kind of honor our value, this kind of impact leverage, where you invest in something that actually has a longer term impact, education, wells, infrastructure, those things that can support people for a longer period of time. Very well said, Marcus. Thanks for sharing that. And uh, so any other final tidbits, uh, things that I should have asked you or you wanted me to ask you that you basically want to share at this point as we wrap up? 
You know, I would say that, you know, um, you know, we, the, the, your show is about wealth and, you know, about wealth creation and those kind of things. And, you know, and, and I think that, you know, entrepreneurs are great empowerment of, you know, creating that and have great opportunities to create it as, as well as lots of other people do as well. Um, but I do think that, you know, I think one thing that I really tried to honor and learn about it is, you know, what we do with it, it's a tool in the day. Most entrepreneurs are passionate about building things. The wealth is kind of secondary, but with that, you have to be smart. There's a lot of entrepreneurs that have wasted all their money. You know, it's all gone away because they haven't been smart with it too, right? So it, it's kind of a big challenge for a lot of entrepreneurs because they're working so hard in their business, especially if it's not in the financial industry, you know, about how they manage their wealth. And so they need good partners to help them do that. There's been a lot of great advisors, you know, and, and one last thing I will say, um, when you're choosing an advisor, and you know this from your own experience, you know, my philosophy is very simple because I have a, a few different advisors, right? Which is, you know, who's the best advisor at the firm, right? Or the top two or three, right? And I only pick the top one, two or three person at two or three different firms. That's how I choose, right? Because they have the best resources, typically the best access to products, the best access to, you know, deeper understanding because they have more resources to be able to to manage it because there's a leverage effect for them, right? If they're managing a billion dollars or $10 billion or half a billion dollars, you know, they basically get to have the same strategies against just more capital. So, but the more people they have, the more team they have, the more sophisticated they could be for clients, right? And so, you know, I never want to be with someone that's just learning the business. Otherwise, go back to my philosophy, right? If I got to learn it, I'm going to lose money. If they're learning it, they're probably losing my money, right? And so that was one other thing that's really helped me in terms of the wealth creation side was to pick a few advisors a few top firms, you know, but pick one person in the top three or five people in the firm only and then deal with them only. And uh, I think it'd be a lot more successful. Yeah, well said. Well, uh, thank you, Marcus, very much for spending your time with us today and for our listeners. And on behalf of our listeners, I just want to say this was a really good session. So thank you very much. That was Marcus New, the founder and CEO of Investex Capital. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the podcast uh, show today and also our prior uh, episodes. I really wanted to give a nice shout out to the BNN, uh, sorry, the BNN Bloomberg brand studio team, which does a, a great uh, job of uh, editing these sessions and kind of making sure they're, they're as professional as possible. So on behalf of Stinner Wealth Partners at Canaccord Genuity, I just, and myself, Thane Stinner, uh, thank you everybody for listening in today. Next month's guest is David Rosenberg, R R Rosenberg Research, uh, based in Toronto. Um, I've known David for a good 20 years from my former uh, Merrill Lynch days. Uh, he used to be the North American uh, chief economist and strategist for uh, Merrill Lynch and also Gluskin Chef out of Toronto. So he's got his own boutique research firm and, uh, that discusses the insights of the markets. And I think next month's uh, session is going to be a really interesting session as well. On behalf of the BNM Bloomberg Brand Studio, Smart Wealth Podcast, uh, hosted by myself, Thane Stinner. Super pleased that you're listening in and uh, uh, check out our next session uh, next month. Take care, everybody. Bye, bye for now. The comments expressed in this podcast are the results of work done by Stenner Wealth Partners. They may differ from the opinion of Canaccord Genuity Corp. and should not be considered as representative of Canaccord's beliefs, opinions, or recommendations. All views expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. The statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice, and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. 
jurisdiction. All views are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or general needs of any particular person, organization, or institution. Canaccord is a member of the CIPF.